Providing a safe, stable home with plenty of good food, love, and nurturing is always the goal for child advocates. But when problems create instability and children are considered to be at risk, what is the best way to protect them? Alaska has chronic challenges in finding enough families willing to foster children and caseworkers to support them. How has the pandemic affected these numbers? We're discussing the need for more foster families and ideas for reforming foster care today on Talk of Alaska. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. With Omicron spreading fast, many Alaskans will test positive for COVID-19. If this happens to you, what should you do? Head home and isolate as best as you can away from others. Let your close contacts know they may have been exposed so they can quarantine. Get plenty of rest and stay hydrated. Call your doctor. Treatments may be available, especially if you are at high risk for severe illness. If your symptoms worsen, seek medical help. This message sponsored by the Department of Health and Social Services. The views expressed on this program are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Hello, it's Talk of Alaska. I'm Lori Townsend. There are about 3,000 children in foster care in Alaska, and recent reporting by Alaska Public Media found that by the end of 2021, the number of licensed foster homes had dropped from more than 1,100 to about 650. 450 fewer homes. Child advocates are having a hard time finding a safe place for kids in crisis. Here to help us better understand what's happening currently and how changes can and should be implemented are Amanda Mativier. Amanda is the interim director for the Child Welfare Academy in Anchorage. She is a former foster parent and was in foster care when she was younger. Also joining us today is Eileen McGinnis, the director of the Alaska Center for Resource Families. And Laura Ingham is with us also. Laura is a foster parent. Welcome, all of you. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having us. You can also join our conversation if you'd like, Alaskans. Are you a foster parent or are you interested in becoming one to help out families in your community? Have you been in foster care and have ideas for how to improve the system for the future? You can call us statewide at 1-800-478-8255. That number is 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422. 5508422 you can also email us talk at alaskapublic.org Amanda let's start with you tell us about the academy you train caseworkers for OCS for the Office of Children's Services is that right um, thanks Lori that is a, a big part of what we do so at the Child Welfare Academy we're at um, University of Alaska Anchorage and so we do training for um, Child welfare staff at the Office of Children's Services, but also community agencies, child care, um, uh, tribal partners, and we have uh, some direct service program where we also work directly with young people who are transitioning out of foster care um, and into higher education, careers, learning life skills, um, and we, we partner with Facing Foster Care in Alaska, the, the youth-led advocacy organization. Um, and more recently, um, we've been working under a grant and, and partnering with Alaska Center for Resource Families and some other entities to, um, to try to recruit foster families across the state. 
Mm-hmm. And we'll certainly talk more about that. So, Amanda, describe the current situation. Are young people still sleeping in temporary places like OCS offices because of the shortage in foster homes? Um, that has been an issue. I've, um, you know, we've had young people who have who have been forced to stay in offices, hotels, um, more children and youth staying in shelters than ever before. Um, you know, the system was really challenged, like most government systems and child welfare systems across the country prior to COVID. And I, I think that um, the pandemic has really exacerbated that. And, um, you know, OCS has, has experienced an even greater staffing crisis. They, they have a 60% turnover rate among staff, um, and we're experiencing the great resignation everywhere. So it's been more challenging to find staff and in turn support existing foster families um, to be able to continue to do the work. And so there's been a, a, a huge decline in foster families as well. Yeah, that's a startling number. 450 at least um, have left the system. That's a, that seems like a, a, a definite uh, large crisis in finding homes to fill that need. And then there weren't enough even with at 450 before, were there? There's there's always been a challenge with having enough foster families or being able to find the, you know, the right fit for a child or a sibling group that come in. Um, and with less options now, it's it's an even greater challenge. Um, and you know, I think too a big a big part of that is people who it's like with each new COVID variant that comes in. People fear for, you know, the health of their family, for if things are going to shut down, like school and childcare, um, if they're still going to have a job. And so all these, you know, societal stressors are weighing on every family, your average family. Um, and, and that creates a bigger challenge to then asking the community to really step up and help, because ultimately children are the ones in this circumstance that suffer, children and youth who who need a, a warm bed, who need a family, who need you know, someone temporarily to look out for them and take care of them and care for them um, while their parents are, are doing the work or um, as maybe a potential more long-term option. All right. Thank you, Amanda, for starting us off. Eileen, uh, as the director of the Alaska Center for Resource Families, tell us about um, what you provide. Uh, you work with um, people who are interested in becoming foster parents. Is that correct? You're, you provide training for them? Yeah. Um, Lori, we, we have a continuum of services. Uh, Alaska Center for Resource Families is a private nonprofit agency that works really closely with the Office of Children's Services to provide a continuum of services. So when folks are first interested in becoming a foster parent, um, we man the 18, uh, 800 number that is on a lot of the recruitment materials. So we want people to get good information right from the beginning of how to attend orientation or how to get an application. What does it take to become a foster parent? Um, and we assist with those orientations as well. And then we do the initial training for foster parents as well as ongoing training because there's training requirements as part of the licensure. Um, we also provide support. We take a lot of phone calls from folks that are looking for resources, that are trying to find out how to navigate within the Child Protective Services. 
And then for some of our families, they actually may go on to be that permanent placement that Amanda had referred to and um, become a guardianship family for a child or an adoptive family. So we also provide post-adoption education, training support as well. So, uh, Eileen, talk a little bit about that training. How much is needed? What should families prepare for in terms of a time commitment before a child would be placed with them? Yeah, so as you're, as you're coming into the initial core training is, um, and we've been offering this on Zoom because of uh, COVID transferring over, we actually have three offices in the state that cover the state, but our Zoom training for core training is a, a, a seven-part series of an hour and a half each. And through that, we have two major goals that, that we want folks to know is, first of all, Children are coming into the foster care system because they're coming from a place of trauma, which oftentimes includes child abuse and neglect, perhaps exposure to domestic violence, substance abuse. Those are the issues that are bringing kids into foster care. So it's important that families provide a place. We've been talking about a warm bed and food, but also they need to have the understanding to understand how trauma impacts kids so that it can become a healing home emotionally as well as physically as well. So we talk about trauma-informed parenting. And then secondly, um, foster families are about to join a really complicated system. It's not just the, the social worker you're working with. You're working with the court systems. You're working with tribes. You're working with guardians ad litem. Um, and you're working with birth parents as well, too. So the second part of that training is the role of the resource family within that larger system. So families should expect to go through that core training, and it's really going to help them do a better job with their kids. And then afterwards, there's a licensure requirement that foster homes in Alaska get 15 hours a year of training of their own choosing Um, between two parents or if it's a single foster parent, uh, 10 hours of training. And Eileen, is there a typical foster parent or who, who do you, who, who do you think of when you think of foster parents? Who can be foster parents? Um, that's a great question. And we tend to have like two big categories. One is this, what we call specific child, but oftentimes it's a relative, a good portion, um, uh, probably about 40, 45% of our foster families are actually related to the child they're doing uh, foster care for. So grandparents, aunts, uncles, siblings are asked by the Office of Children's Services to provide that home for a child who comes into the foster care system. Um, So they can be of all ages. Um, And then the other big group are, of course, folks that um, come into the system and they're uh, providing care for a child who's not related to them. And when I think of them, I oftentimes think of people that have a huge heart because to take a child into your home really means that you you have to have a heart for this this work. Um, But they can be – we have some young folks. We have folks that are – Uh, maybe are not able to physically have a family themselves, so they want to dedicate themselves to 
caring for kids who are in need of home. We have folks that are empty nesters that just are big family people that um, are taking in um, uh, foster care placements in order to provide a home for them. We have some folks that come into the foster care system who are actually interested in providing a permanent home for kids who maybe are not able to reunify. So it kind of goes the whole spectrum. And it doesn't have to be a couple, correct? Correct. You can be a single foster parent. You can be um, a married foster parent. You do have to be at least 21 years old unless you are a relative to that that child. But um, uh, we have foster families that are in all different shapes, colors, and sizes. All right. Thank you. If you're just joining us, this is Talk of Alaska, and we are discussing today the crisis in foster care in Alaska and the need for more foster families to step up and help kids in their community. With us today are Amanda Mativier. She is the Interim Director of the Child Welfare Academy in Anchorage at the university. Eileen McGinnis is the Director of Alaska Center for Resource Families. And Laura Ingham is a foster parent who we're going to hear from next. You can join our conversation at 1-800-478-8255. That's statewide, 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422. 550-8422. You can also email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. And I should mention that we did ask for participation from the Office of Children's Services, but they declined to make anyone available. So we have other experts with us today. Now, Laura, I want to turn to you. Um, You are one of our heroes, our champions. You are a foster parent. How did you get started in being a foster mom? Um, well, I, uh, I actually was raised in the system myself, um, and then uh, I had um, aged out at 19, went to college, and then um, I had got a call from my old GAL, um, and pretty much that conversation was um, my little brother and sister were, were taken from my mom, and so uh, I moved back to Alaska to take care of them, and that's pretty much how I got started. Oh, my goodness. Well, how long ago was that? How long have you been doing foster work? Um, I came back to take care of them. I was about 24, so I've been doing this since I was 24. And tell us about 18 years. 18 years. Okay, thank you. I didn't want to ask, but I'm glad you let us know. Thanks. (laughs) Tell us about the training, and do you get enough support from OCS to uh, so that you feel like you have good success with the kids that you foster? You've been doing it for 18 years now. Yeah, um, I mean the training is is very much similar to what Eileen um, had talked about, but I think the, the 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 training that I have that is most relevant to me being successful is just my life experiences. I I know what it feels like to move in garbage bags, to hit multiple homes, to deal with different situations. Um, And so uh, when you've been through that, you can kind of, you have an understanding and you can kind of troubleshoot that and and make it a little little bit easier for the kid, whoever's transitioning to your home. Yeah, yeah, that lived experience. What do you want people to know about both the rewards and the stress of being a foster family? Um, you know, I, I feel like honestly that I have a unique perspective on it because it's a, it's a exciting, it's a, it's super addicting um, for me. Uh, you, you have to um, 
like Eileen said, um, if it's not like a relative care, you have to be, you have to love this because it's not easy. Um, and it, it's, it's almost a normal parenting thing that you go through, I guess, in a normal home. But it's, it's, sometimes it's, it, it can be times, times two, times five, times ten, depending on the trauma that the kid comes into. But these kids really aren't no different than everybody else. Right. They just need someone to help them and protect them. Let's go to the phones for just a moment. Thank you, Laura. Uh, We'll get back to you and asking more questions of you in a bit here. But let's go to the phones now. Autumn is in Anchorage. Hi, Autumn. Hi, how are you? Good. Did you have a question? Um, Yeah, I was wondering, um, and just based on the Office of Children's Services statistical information um, on their website as of January of 2022, they had listed that 3,033 children in care um, are in care in Alaska right now. And of that, 2,020 are Alaska Native and American Indian, to which Casey families and others testified in January of 2021 to the legislator is disproportionate. Um, and the disparity that is indicative of removals based on race. So I was wondering what role does the failure of the negotiations on the Tribal Child Welfare Compact in May of 2019 play in either the increased number of children in care and or lack of foster homes and what progress has been made regarding those disparities since the legislative testimony. Specifically, are there any overt or covert barriers to Alaska Native families um, fostering? All right. Well, thanks, Autumn, for that question. I don't know if our guests, um, they're certainly welcome to weigh in on what they know about this. But as I mentioned, we did invite, uh, we asked for for participation with uh, uh, someone from the Office of Children's Services, and they declined to make someone available. But you are pointing out uh, a glaring disparity in the percentages of Alaska Native and American Indian children who are placed in foster care, as you noted, more than 2,000 of the 3,000-plus children in in-home, out-of-home care are Alaska Native or American Indian children, 65% of the total number. And uh, Alaska Native people comprise about 20% of the general population. And this is a Alaska Department of Labor statistic from 2019. I'm sure that's changed some since then. But as you know, it's quite clear it's a very disproportionate amount Amanda or Eileen, do you have uh, any uh, uh, comment about uh, what Autumn was asking? This is Amanda. I can add, I think Autumn brings up a really important point in this conversation um, because disproportionality of Alaska Native and American Indian children in our child welfare system, in our state specifically, has continued to rise. Um, So I, I remember being a part of of conversations when we said, oh, you know, disproportionality is, is upticking and we're looking at 50 percent, 60 percent, 65 plus percent. Um, and, you know, I haven't, haven't been as much a part of the conversation around the Tribal Child Welfare Compact, but I think it's significant to our state and really could be a template for other systems across the country in terms of government to government relations and really allowing for our state child welfare agency to turn over child welfare services and response to families to tribes, Um, because I think so much of what we see in terms of Alaska Native families involved in the system, I don't know that we can even have this conversation without talking about the history of our state um, and the history of of residential boarding schools and what 
that has meant for family separation, specifically Alaska Native children from their families, um, and how that plays a role in our, our child welfare system today. I think we're seeing so much of the repercussions of what has happened for families. Um, and so I would hope that as the investment from the state into compacts continues to go up, that disproportionality would go down. But I don't know what that means for foster care home licensing, or even if there's more Alaska Native families or homes, maybe Eileen could speak to that piece mm-hmm. of it. Eileen? Yeah, yeah. I would just add into that is that I think there's some really um, important things going on there to um, uh, try to engage the tribes more and give tribal communities more uh, uh, power over their uh, making those decisions. And I, I'm thinking of two tribal foster care programs one through Tanana Chiefs Conference up to in Fairbanks and the Clinkett-Hida Central Council down in Juneau that are actively uh, working on tribally licensed homes. Some of those homes are duly licensed up in uh, uh, Fairbanks. They've been working with duly licensed homes for a couple years where folks are both uh, licensed by the tribe for tribal members and licensed by the state as well, too. So I think there's some movement going on there to really address that. But that disproportionality is a huge factor. And I'm glad that Autumn brought that up because it's one of the big um, uh, uh, situations uh, going on in Alaska that's both been stubborn, but also as Amanda said, uh, a product of many, many years of generational um, trauma and trends as well. And as we know, it's uh, uh, certainly Alaska Native and American Indian children are, as we noted, are far overrepresented, but other children of color are as well. Uh, An article from UAA researchers Yvonne Chase and Jessica Ulrich called a connectedness framework breaking the cycle of child removal for black and indigenous children had a number of of recommendations and conclusions um, things such as oppressed population should have a legally recognized role in designing culturally appropriate and relational systems of care to assure the safety of their children. Federally recognized tribes should be able to design and implement their own child protection systems. Tribal courts should have jurisdiction over child protections. And a- another recommendation was neighborhoods need to be revitalized. Uh, And so it's getting at this idea that it starts much, much sooner, of course, um, than just when a child needs to be uh, placed somewhere else. Then it seems like when you got to that point, we've already almost failed the family and the child. Amanda, you noted that this isn't the government's responsibility. It's all of our responsibility. Describe your thinking here about how, um, especially in light of this idea of revitalizing neighborhoods as a way of helping people have safer homes and more opportunity so that maybe they have better family outcomes? You know, I think so much of, of what happens with the, the system, it's like once OCS gets the call, it's, it's too late. You know, like what has that family experience up until that point? Or maybe multiple calls have come in. And so what does that look like on the ground and in communities? What can we do to really support families to move upstream and focus on prevention? People people were around and we've been around, right, since long before 
child welfare existed, right? People lived and took care of each other and gener- across generations took care of each other, right? With grandparents and aunts and uncles and communities and neighborhoods and neighbors. And so what does that look like, right, on the ground in communities? And so much of that is um, an investment in childcare and after-school programs and just being a good neighbor, um, being a good human being and stepping up to, to care for others. If you're a parent, you know that, um, you know, when you bring a, a baby, a little person home for the first time, that's a major life-changing event. But it's also something that's really hard to do alone. Um, and, you know, we know from, from research for the Center for the Study of Social Policy and, and other entities that um, protective factors, right? And so uh, speaking to the Indigenous Connectedness Framework that Jessica um, Ulrich cites in her research and her article with Yvonne Chase is really about connectedness to our community and to each other our relationships with other people and how we lean on each other. And as we become more isolated and the the pandemic has really fed into that in a big way, right? It's got people held up in their household and, and less likely to ask for help or less likely to have childcare or less likely to, you know, have support from others. um, It makes it a lot harder. Like really we're supported when we're connected to each other, our friends, our family, our community, our schools, Childcare entities. Um, so much of this just comes from relationship with others and how we lean on each other. That's how we promote prevention and we take care of each other just as individuals and be good human beings. Yes. Uh, another one of the conclusions from this report said that individuals and families should not live in fear of being the targets of violence and of having their children removed by a system they do not understand how to navigate. That, to me, is a really important piece here. Um, do you think part of the problem with the shortage in uh, families who want to become foster families is that people are either mistrustful or suspicious of the Office of Children's Services, that they have a negative attitude about children being removed at all. This is a state that has privacy enshrined in its constitution. Eileen, do you want to take that one? You know, I I would like to take that because I would like to add something in there as well, too, is that people should, I mean, you know, people value their children above all things. So, of course, when we talk about, um, you know, your right to to parent your children and um, who's going to take care of your children, that that reaches down to our very, very basic piece. I do want to just add on to that as well, too, is that there is a lot of movement out there to prevent kids from coming into the foster care system in the first place. And to look at that fear that people might have of that, um, again, we talk about there's a reason why LCS gets involved with families. So let's look at those reasons and let's see if we can get help to families before they're at that point, as Amanda said, then they come into the OCS system. Um, there are a couple really interesting things going on out there. I want to point out um, an organization named Beacon Hill has something called Safe Families, and they're really trying to put together an informal, um, it's not foster care, but it's families who um, who voluntarily uh, take in uh, kids where their parents need some extra help. They're in the hospital. They're looking for a job. They're, they're homeless, and they need a safe place for kids to be. So it doesn't rise to the level of that OCS would get involved, 
but connecting up those families with a community can help them get back on their feet before they get. That's those neighborly things that Amanda was talking about. There's also an organization called Alaska Impact Alliance that specifically is trying to build up those things that are going to make our families stronger so that families can get the help they need, provide a good uh, place for their kids to be in and not get into the foster care system. And that um, it's a large uh, uh, collaboration of different people that are working on parent resource centers and um, looking at strengthening tribal communities to be able to provide some of those culturally relevant practices so that families can support each other. So there's some good things out there happening to help kids remain in with their birth parents but also to make sure that those kids are going to be safe. And I, and I want us to talk a little more about some of those ideas after the break, but I, I wanted to get Laura back in here uh, quickly before we have to take a break at the bottom of the hour here, especially about that um, idea of children being removed by a system they don't understand how to navigate. Laura, what's been your experience uh, in, in working with families of color and how their level of anxiety and and mistrust and fear about this system that has the authority to take their children? Well, when I have uh, those families that have that display those anxieties and fear, I try to keep their focus on the person who's taking care of their kid. You know, yes, the system's broken. Yes, they'll have all these negative things to say. But, hey, let's just focus on me. I have your kid. I'm giving you updates. I'm letting you know. Um, I'm telling you the progress that they're making. I'm telling you how they're doing on a daily basis so it can kind of ease that anxiety a little bit because if you focus on the problem, you're just, you're just going to go crazy. And so that's why I try to shift the focus when I notice um, I have kids and dealing with families that, that have those fears that the kid is going to be taken forever and uh, the mom's trying to be replaced and, and you see it all the time. Hmm. All right. Well, thank you. We are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue our discussion on the need for foster families in Alaska and ideas on how to change the system to help kids before they have to be removed as Talk of Alaska continues statewide. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. Parents, did you know that one out of four Alaska high school students currently use e-cigarettes? E-cigarettes are easy to use and easy to hide. What teens breathe in and out from e-cigarettes is not safe. It contains cancer-causing chemicals, toxic metals, and nicotine. Nicotine can lead to addiction. It can harm brain development and hurt memory, learning, and attention span. Parents, talk to your teens about vaping. Visit livevapefree at alaskaquitline.com. This message sponsored by the Alaska Tobacco Quitline.
Welcome back to Talk of Alaska. We're discussing the need for more foster families in Alaska. It's kind of a chronic need, but it's gotten gotten much, much worse uh, since the pandemic. Many homes that were open to children in the past have now decided that they can't, they can no longer take in children. So there is a crisis in foster care, both in uh, available safe places for kids and also there is a lot of ideas about transforming the system and helping families before it gets to the point where children need to be removed. Our guests today are Amanda Mativier, Interim Director of the Child Welfare Academy, Eileen McInnes, Director of the Alaska Center for Resource Families, and Laura Ingham, a foster parent who has been taking in kids for 18 years. You can join our conversation if you have questions or comments. Statewide, the number is 1-800-478-8255. 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422, 550-8422. You can also email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. Eileen, talk about, uh, before we talk about ideas for um, changing the system so that there's more support before kids have to be removed, talk about how community standards may change what kind of home is needed or what kind of sleeping arrangements may be acceptable? Yeah, a lot of times when folks um, become foster parents, especially when you look at our state of Alaska where living arrangements are, you know, very different from bush areas to suburban um, Anchorage, um, a lot of times people are really concerned, is, is my home going to be good enough for this? So we always like to kind of help people walk through that system because there are licensing standards that your home needs to meet to meet basic safety standards. Um, but that's going to look different in the bush than it is um, in uh, urban Alaska or urban Anchorage. And so it's important that uh, folks know that they do look at, you know, kind of community standards, like what is kind of the average way that that people live or the houses. So we don't expect you to have uh, an Anchorage-type home if you live in Chivac or a a place. They're going to be looking at those community standards. So there are some basic things that people need to uh, have in their homes in order to meet a certain standard of safety if you're going to become a foster home. And those are are probably uh, pretty standard uh, across the state. Okay, and do the licensing requirements uh, timeline, does it change during times of crisis? What's the usual amount of time that people should expect that it will take to get licensed? You know, that's always that's always a question, and it always is answered by it depends. But generally, there's a whole process that people go through in terms of filling out an application, having fingerprints and back uh, fingerprints taken and background checks done, and that's a safety feature of it. There's always a home visit involved with that where a licensing worker will come. And look for things like, you know, where's the child going to sleep? Does he have a a place that's his? um, Does he have a place to put his his things? Um, uh, Are there any big safety concerns uh, about a a home that might pose a danger to a child? So there's that home visit. Um, There's training, and that training can happen during the licensing process or in the first year of training. We advise folks to get it as soon as they can Um, because it's going to help them with caring for the the kids. But there's that training during the first year. 
And then there's putting all those things together, including getting your references back. So that whole process, if it goes really smooth and everything goes on, can be anywhere between two and four months um, if you're being licensed for a child that you're not related to. It can go longer if your references don't come back or, or those kinds of things. But that, that's what people can expect. However, when we're talking about placing with a relative home, it can go a lot faster. There's what's called a, um, emergency licensing for uh, relative caregivers where you're meeting some basic background uh, uh, checks. There's a, a walkthrough through your home. So you're meeting some of the basic parts of the, the safety piece of it. The child is placed with you, and then as an unlicensed relative, you don't have to go through the full licensing uh, process, but we encourage people to uh, do that just because it will help them access some resources that will help them care for the child in their home. So that could happen really quickly. All right. Thank you. 1-800-478-8255 is the number statewide if you'd like to join our conversation. If you have ideas about what would be uh, good reforms for foster care and supporting families before children need to be removed, 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422, 550-8422. You can also email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. Amanda, a story by Alaska Public Media reporter Wesley Early described a foster parent who left the system, citing a lack of training and a lack of a qualified workforce. Jason England lives in Klawak on Prince of Wales Island. He and his wife got licensed in 2018, and within days they had three kids in foster care. He had to pick them up himself. It was definitely a transition. It was it was definitely awkward, you know, going into their house, getting their stuff, the mom sitting there, them crying. But, you know, working in law enforcement, they kind of train you to to take control of your emotions. And, I, you know, I try to keep it as low key as possible. And, you know, that was the beginning of this journey. Amanda, what are your thoughts about that, that he uh, had to go by himself? When caseworkers go to get children from homes, do they normally have someone go with them? Do police officers go with them? It seems it could be dangerous for a caseworker. Or in the case of, of Mr. England, uh, he had to go by himself to get the kids. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I think, too, that that's a result of the the staffing challenges at the Office of Children's Services. Um, you know, I think the, the same story also noted from the OCS director that, you know, there's a bigger ask from foster families. I also think sometimes that's based on circumstance, right? Is there is there a caseworker on the ground in that community? And if not, what does that look like? Um, I have personally experienced that in, in my own experience as well. Um, I became a foster parent at, at 23 and was emergency license and had a similar experience where I was asked to go with that young person to their home um, and gather their belongings. Um, but I would say in my experience, yeah, that was awkward, but I really connected with that parent. Um, and I think in many ways that helped to foster my relationship with her outside of the system. And I grew to really love and respect her. Um, and knowing that she had challenges with substance abuse, I think it helped us really come together around the needs and support of her child over a lot of years. 
Um, so I think that can play out in a number of different ways. It can certainly be scary for a newly licensed foster family to go into the home of, of strangers where the government is involved. And um, I don't recommend that that be how it play out in any way. Um, but I think that that, that is, uh, you know, a highlight to what the challenges our, our system is, is posing for families right now. Signing up to be a foster parent is not an easy feat. It's not something that, um, you know, I think people come in and, and have this idea of there's going to be a ton of support and it's going to be great. You're going to love on these children. And um, it's really complicated and it's a really difficult system to deal with. And so you're signing up for grief and stress and um, a lot of challenges. But I think ultimately, like, it's it's all it's about children and meeting the needs of children. And so, what is our responsibility as a community, and what is our responsibility as adults? Um, I know the system's not going to be fixed overnight. It's not going to be fixed tomorrow. Um, but ultimately, if there's no one to step up for a child, then then what does that look like? Continued children sleeping in offices and sleeping in hotels and being placed in shelters while they're while they're waiting. Well, I want to get back to Laura now, the foster parent who is on with us. Um, in in that clip that we heard from Mr. Anglin, uh, the former foster parent in Cloac, he's, he um, described his first encounter, and he is no longer a foster parent. He said that in the time that he was, uh, roughly three years, he had eight different OCS caseworkers in those three years. Is this an extreme example of turnover, or is that something that you've experienced? How many caseworkers have you? You've been doing this for 18 years now, Laura. Um, well, I mean, I heard the clip, and um, I guess I guess to someone who's not in the business, they might think that's crazy and extreme, but uh, I didn't see anything wrong with it. And, and granted, I, I've been in it for a minute, so I'm. Some, most of my friends say I'm not wrapped tight anyway, but... Uh, No, I don't see anything wrong with that. And at the end of the day, if your child was in harm's way, you would go and you would do whatever you needed to do to get your child. And when you're deciding and taking on uh, foster children, whether you're birth or it's a relative placement or a friend of a friend's kid, you're going to do what you need to do to keep the kids safe. Um, And if you have the idea going in that you are going to parent this child, um, then you're not relying so much or so heavily on these social workers to get the, to get things done. I mean, the system has changed dramatically since I was in. Back in the day, it was uh, DFYS. Uh, social workers did everything. We relied on them for everything. But now you're actually parenting. And I hope you know, when we're recruiting foster parents, that they have that understanding that you are going to parent. You're not a, a just like a paid babysitter. You are actually parenting. And along with parenting, sometimes there's difficult situations and you're going to act accordingly. And I, I've, I've been to different houses. I've been to trap houses. I've been to drug houses looking for my kids because those were some of the problems that came with fostering them. And you, you, you do it because you want your kid to be safe. And that's just, that's, the, that's just the essence of it. We can't forget that we are being asked to parent. And you, you mentioned, Laura, that there's been a lot of change in the 18 years that you've been doing foster care. Um, and it sounds like uh, it's moved in a direction where you have more authority now. 
Do you see that as as the right step? Is it out of necessity because caseworkers just have way too many cases? Or do you think that this is a, a good transition, that the foster families um, have more parental authority? Um, I mean, I, I can't say I'm I'm. I don't, I don't know if all foster parents are as involved as I like to be. Um, I think the authority should go, um, should increase as you have an understanding of the system and, and, and an involvement in that kid's life. Um, because then that's what actually makes the connection to try and, um, have OCS parent your child through, through you and, and, and make rules and regulations for your home that you, you can't build a relationship off of that because then it's just like you're, you, you end up being the parent that's like, well, if you don't do what I say, then I'm going to go tell my mom, which is my social worker. And that's not, that's not realistic either. And so um, if the foster parents are coming in with the, with the intentions of fostering and, and taking care of that kid and being a parent for however long that kid is in your house, then um, you, you, you shouldn't need... Um, the social worker to be doing all this stuff. Plus, I mean, at the end of the day, we can go back and forth all we want, but at the end of the day, the system is what it is. That's why we're asking for people for help. And if, if you don't, you don't, you don't, when, when the system's working fine, you're not asking for help. You know what I mean? If you're, if your car is running smoothly, you're not calling a mechanic. You call the mechanic when you need help. And then when you come to help, expect to help. And not for it to be just working smoothly, or you wouldn't have been called in the first place, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you for that. We are going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue this discussion about the need for foster families to step up and help out kids in crisis in Alaska, and also ideas for reforming the system so that families can get assistance before it gets to the crisis point. As Talk of Alaska continues statewide. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. NEA Alaska is a professional education association representing over 11,000 of Alaska's dedicated public school employees. NEA Alaska members are united in their commitment to provide an excellent education for every student, regardless of background or zip code. Together, NEA Alaska members work with colleagues, parents, and their communities to build strong public schools that are productive, safe, and welcoming to all. Learn more at NEAalaska.org and help NEA Alaska reach, teach, and inspire all Alaska students. This message sponsored by NEA Alaska. Welcome back to Talk of Alaska. We're discussing the need for foster families in the state. You can join our conversation at 1-800-478-8255. That's 1-800-478-8255. In Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422, 550-8422. You can also email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. As Sandra did, and Sandra says she was a foster parent for a few years. She says she was glad she was able to help out. And um, noted that the OCS personnel changed quickly. She said you would get to know one and another would replace. They too often had an attitude of regulation and not support. They would not answer phone calls until after the 48-hour mark. Less than helpful people skills. She says, I was new to the program, could have used support and clarification, not excuses. She says, I feel OCS needs reorganization and modernization in thought and deed. 
let's talk about some of that. That um, uh, you've all referenced some of the ideas that would be helpful. But Amanda, you ultimately you said ultimately the solution is the community, sort of the it takes a village concept. Beyond the clear need for families to open their homes to kids in need, what else do you mean by the community is the solution? You know, actually, I actually want to back up a little bit, if that's okay, and kind of kind of go back to something Laura said that I feel like also ties into this conversation about the the challenges with staffing and, and responses when people do sign up to be foster parents. Because um, in recent years, federal and state legislation, so there's been change in policy that has really led us toward, um, this, they call it normalcy. So really across the country and our state, normalcy for children in foster care has been legislated. And a big part of that has been the passage of the reasonable and prudent parent standard. And so that has really meant you don't call the caseworker and wait for a response to see if your child can stay the night at a friend's house or sign a permission slip for a field trip or do things that children would just normally do. It really gives foster parents the ability to make those reasonable decisions for children in their care. Um, and so lifts some of that more regulatory or policy-heavy um, control that the agency would have so that foster parents can really, like Laura said, parent. And so I think in a big way, our, our system has shifted towards that. Um, and just at the federal level, there has been changes that's sort of trickling out now into states around really trying to focus on prevention, right? And so, again, like looking back into the community and what does that look like? And so um, we know from, from research, again, that there are, there are um, five things that are noted as protective factors that really um, help to keep families safe and healthy and functional um, and, you know, not be involved in the system. And um, those are, are social connections, our relationships with others. Who do you call on, right? Who do you call on when you are feeling overwhelmed as a parent or you need, you know, respite from your child? Or you just need someone to talk to for advice on, on questions, right, about if you have a, a baby or a smaller child or a teen and how to navigate that. Um, concrete supports, right? So food, shelter, housing, transportation, um, uh, knowledge of parenting and child development. Do parents understand um, where their child is at developmentally, right? Um, we know a two-year-old throwing a tantrum is normal, but what does that feel like and look like in day-to-day -day and in reality? It can be really overwhelming. Um, resilience. How do people cope daily with stressors, right? Can they um, keep up with things like bills and understanding childcare and, and holding down a job. There's so much responsibility. I feel like that comes with, with just being a parent and then put that on younger parents or, or low income families or folks who haven't really learned how to advocate for themselves yet. There's so much that comes with, um, uh, with being able to take care of your family. Right. Um, and so I feel like a big part of that is what services do we have that are available in the community that are responsive to families, um, but also how, again, like how do we step up and support each other as individuals? Um, you know, the majority of cases that come in um, that are called into OCS are called in by uh, mandated reporters, right? So child care or medical professionals, um, but also majority of the cases that come in are specific to substance abuse, specific to alcohol. Um, and how many detox beds do we have in this state? How many 
you know, substance abuse alcohol support services do we have in this state? It's pretty minimal. Um, so if you look at the problem compared to, to what's on the ground in terms of solutions, there's a huge gap. There's a huge disconnect. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, we don't have a whole lot of time left, and I do want to get to a couple of questions about some ideas for the future. But first, we we want to give a shout-out to the foster families who did stick it out and made it through the pandemic and are still helping kids today. Thank you so much for helping all of us. One young person who has benefited from a willing foster mom is 17-year-old Jesse Herrera. Jesse bounced around foster care and has since age four and was staying in Covenant House in Anchorage because she had trouble being placed. She, they couldn't find a home to, put, to place her in. She's a trans teen, and that's why she was staying at Covenant House until the foster mom of a friend also took in Jesse. Here's what she had to say about finally finding a home. It made me feel like I was loved and cared for and you know, my depression was rough, and I don't think if this I was in this home, I don't think I'd be here today. It does seem like uh, there's a lot of trouble in placing teens. Amanda and Eileen, is that the group that you have, um, that you see the the most work in trying to find homes for them? Yeah, I would, I would say that um, teens are the, the hardest. Mm-hmm. Um, Recently, a call went out through one of our um, uh, partnering agencies for placement of uh, infants, and there was this tremendous outpouring of support from the community. And right below um, that, um, about the same time, a call went out for a placement of uh, two uh, teen siblings, and um, the response was there, but not nearly as as enthusiastic of that. So I think placing teens, because folks perceive teens as being harder placements, and they kind of shy away from that. Um, and so teens are teens are tough, as are sibling groups. And the other uh, group that is oftentimes difficult to place is we have a lot of children with medically complex needs. And so we need folks that are willing to, to learn those medical procedures to care for a medically fragile child as well. The governor has proposed uh, splitting the Department of Health and Social Services into two departments. DHSS would be split into the Department of Health and the Department of Family and Community Services, each with its own commissioner and executive team. Uh, Amanda and Eileen and then Laura, what do you think about this in our final few minutes? Do you think this would help or hurt? Amanda? Um. You know, I I I know that um, the governor had put out recently some of his specific initiatives to people's first, and I don't know if that's tied directly to the proposed um, order. And I haven't had a chance to look at the new order, but I know that he is putting forth an investment in child welfare, and I feel like that is a good thing. Anything at this point that um, our state is willing to step up and do and recognize that this is a problem and invest in child welfare, I feel like is a good thing. Laura, your thoughts about this? You know, I'm not exactly sure. Um, I don't know how splitting is going to affect the foster parents and the work that we do, but um, I am just trusting that those who are above us are making the right decisions. I just adjust accordingly. One of the UAA report uh, says uh, the federal budget needs to shift child welfare funding from foster care and adoption to in-home services, family treatment, and kinship care. 
Um, Eileen, what are your thoughts about that in our finally our final minute here? Do you think that's what needs to happen? Right now, there are billions of dollars that go into uh, removing children and foster the foster system, and only millions of dollars that are in family support before those removals happen. I I think the best system is that if every child can be raised in a home that cares for them, provides for their needs, and lets them thrive. And I think that if we can keep our families um, healthy and growing and address some of those protective factors that Amanda talked about, I think that's a good investment. So I'm a strong believer in prevention. I think we're always going to need to have a system that when that cannot happen. Um, And I think we need to not focus on people's individual failures, like it's their problem because they have a substance abuse problem, but we also need to look at those community factors in terms of housing and employment and support around um, issues of that. So I think those preventative um, measures really are going to help provide a healthy community, which can then build healthy families as well. And Laura, uh, your thoughts about the need for more prevention of removal before it gets to that point, Uh, better support for families and communities and and, uh, systems that are much more equitable? Um, You know, I'm in favor of that, too, because even though I was raised in the system and, it, you know, at the time it benefited me to not be with my family, if there were supports for my mom, to take care of me, you know, even though we have these good foster homes, it, it, it never ultimately replaces being with your family. And if you could provide supports for that family and the kid can still be there, at the end of the day, sometimes nothing beats that because even good foster homes, the kids are, are still missing their family, even the foster homes, you know, the ones that are in good ones. So I'm in favor of, of that for sure. Absolutely. So that siblings can stay together and not have to be split up uh, and kids don't have to be away from their parents if they can get the help they need so that their families can stay healthy. Thank you so much to Amanda Mativier, Eileen McInnes and Laura Ingham for being our guests today and talking about the need for foster families and more support for the systems that help support families and communities so that children don't have to be removed. Thanks to our engineer, Tobin Shelby, our producer, Adlin Baxter, and on the phones and social media today, Kavitha George helped us out. I'm Lori Townsend. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Views expressed are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Today's program is available online at alaskapublic.org. This is Alaska Public Media. Alaska Public Media.